Welcome to A New and Ancient Story, a show dedicated to the transformation of self and society. We're moving from the story of separation to a new story of interbeing. We explore it all, technology, spirituality, agriculture, healing, economics, politics, ecology, relationships, education, because the changes that are gathering today will leave no aspect of our world untouched. For deeper engagement with these ideas, join our community at newandancientstory.net. Everybody. Well, here we are at the uh, Kiva in Santa Fe, the Kiva of Cynthia Jewers, Charles Eisenstein, in conversation with Lila June Johnston. Lila, we met at this uh, peace conference thing in Geneva, of all places. <laughs> yeah, we're both in the jet set and we fly to Geneva all the time. <laughs> but nonetheless, there we were. And uh, I don't know, been together maybe two or three times, not not a lot. And then I wrote an article about Lila called The Woman Who Chose to Plant Corn, um, about her choice not to go to Harvard Business School, which, you know, would, would be part of the story of the Native American woman who made it in the white man's world. Not that that's not an honorable story and an admirable story, but it's not really on the edge anymore. So Lila is one of these edge walkers, which, like all of us edge walkers, means <laughs> different things to different people and doesn't mean that any of us are walking on the edge in every aspect of our lives. But still, nonetheless, on the edge taking forays into new territory. And I like to have conversations with people like that. So I can say, what have you seen in new territory? Which is also, we recognize, perhaps a very ancient territory. So um, I really don't know where to begin, Lila. But I guess maybe do you want to tell a little bit, like maybe five-minute version of your story in the whole Harvard, Stanford, and corn thing. <clears throat> Absolutely. The Harvard-Stanford corn thing. <clears throat> <laughs> so, um, I come from a long legacy of assimilation. Um, my great-grandmother was one of the first nurses on the Navajo reservation and she was raised by Dutch Christian reform missionaries who traveled all the way from Holland and decided to set up shop in the middle of the desert in New Mexico <laughs> and um, <clears throat> my great-grandmother had my grandmother go there 
and my grandfather also went to this missionary school. And my grandmother tells me stories of of when the children would speak Navajo. Mm. They would say, um, you know, sit in the corner, don't do that, and here's your sheet of paper, get your pencil out and write 100 times, I will only speak English, I will only speak English, I will only speak English, I will only speak English. So Deneh Bizad, the Navajo language, was stamped out of my lineage at that <clears throat> at that point. My grandfather was this really rough, go-getter, ambitious guy, and he just was just always pushing the limits. He en enlisted in the army at 17. He was one of the few Navajos to go to Stanford during his time, mm. and he really um, became he really worked to assimilate his own people um, out of love, you know, but he said when he was president of Navajo Community College, he said, Western science will be our meat and potatoes and cultural curriculum will be the salt and pepper mm -hmm. because the culture doesn't put any bread on the table. Mm -hmm. So he believed that to be Navajo was to be poor, but his sampling of what Navajo was was after we were released from a concentration camp and had been starved for four years. So the Navajo he saw isn't the true Navajo. <laughs> yeah. And so I remember when I was in second grade, I got a really good report card. I got 21 E's, which stood for excellent. And um, my grandfather gave me a dollar for every E. Took mm -hmm. me to get some ice cream. I think that was the beginning of my personal assim assimilation went to Stanford, um, graduated with honors, and wanted to go to Harvard because I believe that in order to change the world, I had to do well in the white man's world, so to speak, and gain their respect. And that's when mm -hmm. they would finally listen to me. And when I graduated from Harvard, the great plan was to say, this is stupid, we need to change and was hoping everyone would say, oh, yeah, she's right. She went to Harvard, so we got to change. But then I met an elder, and this really wise, really old elder said, Lila, you can swing the pendulum of society from inside the system. You can swing the pendulum of society from outside the system. Or you could just make your own pendulum. And so that really began my realization that maybe my purpose on earth is not to tinker with and transmute a broken system because in order to do that you still have to play by their rules and you still have to gain credibility by their standards but to just build my own system and work to support people who are already building that new system a new territory mm -hmm. this is coming up a lot in recent conversations i've recorded well, first, I want to mention that, you know, even if you go with your Harvard degree and say the system's broken, you're implicitly with your Harvard degree saying that the system is sound. You know, listen to me because I have a Harvard degree. You're implicitly saying, listen to other people who have a Harvard degree, too. And that validates the whole system. Exactly. I sought to discredit the institution by joining it, which yeah. makes no sense. Right. And so... But you're in, you know, you're in a similar position to a lot of young people I talk to, and I guess not so young people too, in a way, that there's, if you join the old system, there's 
a landing place for you, at least possibly. There's a, a way a way through life that's mapped out. You know, there's a way to make money. There's a way to have social status and and kind of like a structure to hold you. But if you choose not to do that, it's pretty scary stepping into the unknown. One of the things we were talking about in a previous conversation was this idea of creating way stations, these kind of sanctuaries where people who decide not to go to college um, or not to do the career thing, they can, they can go there and be supported and have ways to express their creative energy and, and not be told that they're irresponsible, impractical, and naive, but to actually be celebrated, you know. And, and the other kind of support, and maybe this is what this conversation can do, just by giving examples of that, like, makes it kind of okay, you know? Exactly. And what am I sacrificing going to Harvard? I'm going to spend, you know, three grueling years, likely, um, doing something I don't actually care about. And I'm also making it one more year that I haven't relearned my indigenous language, mm -hmm. which is going extinct as we speak. And so I could have learned how to plant corn. I could have learned what it's like to water your corn. I could have learned what it's like to watch it grow. I could have learned what it's like to take it off the stalk. I could have learned what it's like to collect the pollen for ceremonial use. Mm. I could have learned the songs that go along with all these stages. I could have learned what it's like to give away my corn to people who are hungry. I could have learned what it's like to be grateful for the rain that's coming to to water it. And all these things you can't learn in a book. Um, and and those things we're learning, I think we're we're it's beginning to dawn on us that those things are actually really important, not just for some private satisfaction, but because the way that civilization has navigated this world isn't working. And perhaps I think when we learn to learn when we learn those things and listen to those things, we'll find a way out of the maze that we're in. Yeah. Because like you said, the issues humanity are that uh, the issues that we're facing today are so great and so beyond our comprehension that we're not going to have the solutions coming from the place that we've been. Mm -hmm. We're only going to find those solutions through complete surrender to nature. <laughs> yeah. To Not just to nature, but to time. Surrender to the day and seeing what it'll teach us. And we do have clues, like breadcrumbs we can follow back. Our ancestors did plant corn. Mm -hmm. So maybe if I plant corn, I'm going to learn something. And, and what I find is it's really hard to be angry when you're surrounded by beauty of nature, which is what this poem is about that I recently wrote. When you're surrounded by nature, you can't get lost in the illusion for very long. Mm -hmm. And so I think by, by venturing out into, you know, unknown activities, <laughs> We're not very good farmers anymore, but if we try it, it's automatically going to teach us, not just intellectually, but on a molecular level, who knows what. 
I think that I, I think that um, relearning language is so important. I don't even like if you ask me rationally how how it could make a difference. I wouldn't be able to answer that. Well, maybe I could if I really sat with it for a while. But you know, it seems in the face of this supposedly very urgent crisis we're facing, and it is urgent in a certain way. In the face of that, it seems kind of like a frivolous indulgence to, you know, learn to plant corn or to learn Diné again. I, 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 but just something tells me that the place that we occupy in pursuing that is the same place from which real healing of the planet will come. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This, you know, this, how many people still speak Navajo? It's in the thousands, I want to say. Quite a few, maybe 10,000. Mm-hmm. But they're all elderly. So if the mm-hmm. babies aren't learning it, which they aren't, um, mm-hmm. it doesn't really matter how many speakers there are. It reminds me of Gaelic. You know, I, when I was in Scotland, I heard the same story. You know, like indigeneity actually is still a living memory in Scotland. Because mm-hmm. I talked to an old person who, who described how they were forced to speak English and not Gaelic in school. Mm-hmm. And if they disobeyed, they were like needles were stuck into their lips. Oh. You know, like really intense. The same thing happened in in Taiwan. I used to live in Taiwan, mm-hmm. where if you spoke Taiwanese in school instead of Mandarin, you know, they would they would hit you mm-hmm. with a bamboo cane, you know. Which to me is evidence that these languages are incredibly important. Yeah. If the dark is working this hard to expunge uh-huh. them from the earth, then they are a threat to the dark. And that's a good sign. <laughs> yep. <laughs> that it's a threat to the dark. Yeah, it's a good way to navigate, isn't it? Yeah. What has been ridiculed, disparaged, suppressed? Let's let's go to that. Um, including, and this is related to. I'm also doing this masculinity journey, and in fact, I I uh, recorded a conversation with your mom about that. Father's mom is uh, Pat McCabe, Women Stand Shining. One of the things that's been degraded is pretty much everything that women used to do. And then, in a way, feminism bought into that and said that women's liberation comes from not having to do this degrading stuff. Mm -hmm. So for me, that's been another... In fact, right now, it's even an exploration. I'm doing all this... I mean, here we are doing a podcast, which is going to be listened to by thousands of people. And there's still that part of me that says, well, that means that it's more important then if I turned this off and Lila and I just had a conversation, because that would only reach two people, so it couldn't be as impactful, could it? But maybe if we did that, it would be more impactful on the planet through some devious thread. <laughs> but I don't know. We're not, we won't shut you guys out. <laughs> we have our little box here that's our, our guest. <laughs> Lila, do you have, can, can you read that poem that you sent me? Absolutely. I think I revised it a little since I sent it to you, but let's see here. <laughs> okay. So I was walking in, in Salt Lake City, which is very built out, mm-hmm. and there was this little flower there in the street, um, and it was so beautiful. So <laughs> that's how this poem happened. <laughs> 
this flower alone, which at once is beauty, is rooted into beauty, and whose petals reach out to beauty. This flower alone, whose quiet song is drowned by the blasts and by the evening news of the modern world. This flower alone, and the ambrosia it plants in every cell of my being. This flower standing here alone, living proof of wonder, living proof of hope, living proof of beauty, living proof that God's love for humanity has not lost its devotion. This flower alone, who sits patiently, like a prophecy waiting to be known. This flower alone, like a messenger in the dark of the night, telling me that everything is going to be all right. This flower alone is enough to change my life forever. For the glittering distractions of the information age vanish, and there is only me, the lover, and you, the wonder. And if the only beauty alive in this world was this flower, and if all the rest were chaos, this flower alone would still instruct me by sensation that I am held in the arms of something greater. And if my whole life was colored by darkness and destruction, to one day be so blessed as to just behold this flower, that alone would be worth my birth and my dying. This flower alone has, in a moment, deprogrammed my mind to eat faith and not fear, to wait on joy and not sorrow, to expect communion and not solitude, and to face the fires of this world with an unwavering knowing of beauty and all the fruit it brings. This flower alone, in its unassuming tenderness and grace, has in a moment incinerated my grief like sweet grass in the flames, and left behind only the beautiful scent of what is real. These eyes can finally see the beautiful song sung all around. And if I could rest in this place for just a moment, I would remember who you are, and who I am, and where we are, and how it is supposed to be for everyone. Because concrete may last for a decade, but the earth will never, ever stop bursting through it. This flower alone, a window to the truth, plucks me from illusion and plants me into peace. Creation's perfect body lovingly ignores the evening news like a lava rock in the fire, unscathed, unchanged, and unafraid. I can only pray to be more like you, you who has no name, you who has no money, you who has no clothes and eats the light of the sun, this flower alone, unintentionally and nonchalantly declaring to the universe that peace, order, compassion, and beauty awaits us all in this life or the next. She accidentally wins every argument against her, 
just by being everything that she is. The warring nations try to ignore her, lest they become dumbfounded and see that all their great plans are jejun in the face of just one piece of her pollen that can generate children as beautiful as her so wondrously and effortlessly. And can anyone please tell me the purpose of beauty? Why is it here? Why do we feel the way we feel when we stand before it? Why are her petals painted in this way? And how does it help the economy? Could these brushes against her being truly be God's calligraphy against the world, whispering to us in the dark of the night about something greater that lies in store? I think the line that really pierced me when I first read it was, she accidentally wins every argument set against her. <laughs> there's more, actually. I was going to stop there, but there's more. And how can this flower alone, with no hands and no words, be strong enough to turn my face away from the nightly news and towards the sight that teaches me more than the ivy leaves ever did? I see now why the darkness has so systematically isolated us from Creator's natural world. Because humans lost in their infatuation with trees and bees and rocks and rivers are hard to control. They can only laugh at coercion. Or worse, you could start laughing yourself. And if I was just one soldier who dropped her gun on the ground, and ran into the forest in search of more of these flowers, would it do anything to change the world? Or would the war still rage on? But oh, if the whole army came with me, would we finally rob the world of war completely? And sing sweetly with her songs of praise, thanking the lapping waters, like a bunch of human beings lost in the wonder of Creator's great scheme to feed our bodies, our minds, and our spirits. Why does that line stand out to you? It pierced me. I don't know why. Mm -hmm. Just because I got it. Mm -hmm. Like I really, really understood what you were saying. It was beautiful to me. I feel really grateful that you didn't go to Harvard Business School. <laughs> why is that? Because you probably wouldn't have written that poem if you had. <laughs> Very true. <laughs> One thing that's coming up for me right now is this concept that I mentioned in the sacred economics of turning the accumulations of separation toward the purposes of reunion. Specifically, people who have inherited wealth from their ancestors, monetary wealth, or from themselves from an earlier time in their lives, you know, they have money. I'm wondering what to do with it. So that's the, the resource. And then the need is people like you times several million who are opting out of the structures that would ordinarily feed you <clears throat> with a salary. Not that you're necessarily doing that, but symbolically, that's what the decision not to go to Harvard Business School is. And there are many, many 
who are part of that morphic field, who are making similar choices. So their need, there, there needs to be some kind of alternative, you know, emergent structure that holds those people. And there, I just see like glimmerings of it. But if I really wanted, if I had a large amount of money and I wanted to be impactful with it, I would set up something, some kind of like absolutely no strings attached fellowships and sanctuaries, these way stations I was talking about, for people to explore a different story mm-hmm. of how to be human, mm-hmm. you know, so that they're free free of these of this incredible economic pressure mm-hmm. to you know free of the pressure to conform absolutely and the convenience mm-hmm. of conforming and one of the things that's really been big for me these days is the the density of energy of fossil fuels is it's so energy dense that a teacup full can propel a several thousand pound object through space um, cheaply and conveniently. Mm-hmm. And they propose that the reserves will last about 40 years. And before then, the demand will outweigh the supply, so it'll get very expensive. So I foresee a, a, a scrambling coming up very soon in my lifetime. But eventually that will all play out and there, there won't be this really easy way to live. And we have options. We can recreate a new world, a petroleum-free community, which is really hard. You have to spend a lot of time <laughs> preparing for the winter you're localized you can't just go wherever you want and your food can't come from wherever you want it has to come from where you are and so we right now think that it's easier to participate in this petroleum-based economy because we can go 75 miles per hour down the freeway and hang out and go to the movies and go here and and Probably the chairs we're sitting on right now were shipped here using fossil fuels. And everything we own is our clothes are made out of petroleum and shipped. And so we think we're being, we're taking the easy way out by participating in this petroleum economy. But it's not going to be easy for long. So actually moving into these spaces that you talk about, which aren't dependent on wage labor and capitalism and what have you we're actually we're actually becoming much more fit to survive the coming um, basically proverbial carpet getting pulled out from under uh-huh. the feet of humanity right you know I think I, I'm in fossil fuels is one way to look at that but I think it's much bigger than that. Uh, even if we come up with an alternative for fossil fuels that allows our culture to be, quote, sustainable, there's also a growing consciousness that this isn't what we want to sustain. 
You know, like what does sustainability mean? Mm-hmm. What do we want to sustain? And you know, a culture of, of separation, alienation, obliviousness to all other beings. It's not actually a culture of ease. Mm-hmm. People, the more modern society is, I find, the less easeful people are as far as like feeling at home in the universe, mm-hmm. having a sense of belonging. Mm-hmm. My life is the life that I was raised to participate in is a life of constant anxiety mm-hmm. where at any moment I could be doing something productive. Rest is always a luxury. It's always a, it's almost kind of forbidden indulgence and permissible only to the extent that it allows you to be even more productive afterwards. Like that's not ease, you know? Mm-hmm. So, and I, and I think also that as the consciousness of, of interbeing grows and we look at the causes and effects of these chairs and our clothes and everything else and we see the what's been beyond the veil. We see the sweatshop labor. You know, we see the the refugees from places that the economic system has made unlivable. We see the the devastation of the mountaintop removal and I mean fossil fuels aside, you know, what about the pit mines that get the, that make the copper and the, you know that stuff it's hurting more and more it hurts to to see that happening and so i think that even if fossil fuel depletion doesn't force us into a different world we want to go there anyway yeah like it just hurts too much to be here anymore and so ironically even from the perspective of making a prudent choice about your future, it m- might be more prudent for, you know, these all these young people now that I meet who are going into permaculture and healing arts and music. Like that might actually be the most kind of practical prudent choice as well in the society we're going to move into. Right. Like, like yeah, like you have a guidance system like that that will take care of you. Yes. Even though it doesn't look like that all the time. And that does relate to the story of white buffalo calf women mm. when the people were starving and when the people were um really in disarray and their practical needs were not being met. She came to them. She didn't give them a saw and an axe and a gun and uh, some food. She actually gave them a pipe, which was meant, was made out of a rock and a stick, and that this pipe was going to be their connection to their creator, and that this pipe was going to be their connection to each other. Mm-hmm. And it was also the connection which governed the relationships between men and women. That the pipe, stone, and the stem only come together in the most reverent Mm. and sacred and respectful circumstances. And we were meant to model that. Mm. And this is really related to what you're saying, which is maybe what is practical isn't always physical. But Mm -hmm. maybe what is practical is is born in, in, in the heart and in the spirit. Um, 
and that this um, inner circumstance of feeling a part of something and feeling like you are working for something better than yourself is health, mm-hmm. is well-being, and is the basis for the more physical aspects of well-being. And that's what I was, you know, we already said that in the Bible, the man cannot live by bread alone. Mm. And that's that's really what I'm seeing too, is that, you know, from where I sit, I don't know if it's really going to be this way, but the the communities that will that will thrive in this new chapter of human history are the ones that really look to each other with a lot of compassion and look to each other look to creator with a lot of compassion and just like sun bear talked about my measure of civilization is not how much concrete or buildings they have my measure of civilization is how well people respect the earth and respect each other and that these soft goods you know the the intangible emotions that we we house within us those are actually the root of any hard goods or physical goods and from that soil of inner peace and inner compassion is what sprouts sort of physical peace and physical well-being and things like that so i think you're right um the kid who wanted to who didn't like school <laughs> because it wasn't talking about anything real yeah like forgiveness or how to relate to each other or you know was was their intuition was right on target so on the one hand like not to single you out but you know i feel like the kind of choice you made is is kind of a rising tide that many people in their 20s who in my generation would have unproblematically participated in the system uh, because its dysfunction was a little less visible then from the inside. If you were living on the Navajo Reservation, maybe not so invisible, but if you were living you know, in the heart of middle-class America, things were looking okay. That was already starting to change in my generation. But take it back to my parents' generation, and it was, you know, it seemed like civilization was on the right track. And that's no longer true. And so many people are making the same kind of choice or facing the same kind of choice that, that you are. And I want to, but I want to also be careful not to set it up in too simplistic a way and to say that, you know, you're either choosing the old story or the new story. or Because it's not really, in my mind, it's not about this binary choice between inside the system, outside the system. Um, and if you, if you stay inside and, and get a degree or get a professional thing, then you've sold out or made a less courageous choice. It's not like that. It's really about following a call. And that could take unexpected forms that seem irrational. And also to say that we just don't know. We don't, we don't have a map. At least, I mean, maybe other people outside the dominant culture have better maps. Mm-hmm. But I think we are living in, in a unique time. And so I wanted to, to, to say that kind of as a preamble, because it's not like you're entirely outside the system. 
you work for a large corporation in, you were telling me about cubicle land, right? Yes. So I was working very hard to stay outside the system. I didn't have a job for three years. I was giving away everything I had, my skills to make websites, my skills to make films, my skills to organize community events. I really was enjoying just giving everything away. And then my sister had a child and she was very young. Her boyfriend was very young and they needed a a really peaceful place to raise this beautiful baby, my niece. And so I did what I never thought I would do, and I prayed for a job. And Creator actually answered that prayer in a very interesting, very unexpected way, because I was hired at one of the nation's largest tech companies. So I walk into this space very much suspicious of everyone. And mind you, just a few weeks before, I was working diligently to take down capitalism, to show the world that we we don't need to live to make money, to show the world that profit maximization was absolutely something we had to stop right now. And then all of a sudden, I'm in cubicle land. And there's a sea of cubicles. And I go into this space thinking, these people, oh, I hate them, or, you know, their yeah. BMWs and their Lexus, and I don't know, and I moved to Orange County, of all places, from New Mexico, <laughs> and I'm trying to, like, wear, like, a pencil skirt and heels, and I'm trying to, like, fit in, uh-huh. <laughs> and this is when I was still going to go to Harvard, and um, I, I was going to put this, the fact that I work for this tech company on my uh, resume for Harvard, and I was going to get in, and because I, you know, worked at a corporation and so as soon as I walked into this place I realized that I had to try even harder than I had to before to love the world because I was surrounded by everything I detested (laughs) and I walk into this space and I start really seeing the people who work in these cubicles as some of the most beautiful kind people I've well not I've ever met but just as kind as anyone yeah darn it that's really inconvenient you know like why couldn't they be nasty so that you could keep your story not a single one of them was nasty I can't think of actually one one of them was but you know for the most part they were very nice and what I wanted to do was I wanted to go in and work with their foundation and that's exactly what I was kind of brought in to do was turn this corporate foundation into um, a, a gift-giving entity and to turn capitalism on its head and instead of generating lots of profit for bank accounts and um, what do you call them, pensions and things mm-hmm. like that, to funnel that money into the communities that need it most. So I start working with them and... I realized over time the way that the paycheck was really changing me as a mm-hmm. person because I was making $36 an hour. Actually, I still do. And I went from having nothing, like literally very happy to have a bowl of soup in front of me, to getting paid about $1,500 a week. And I started to notice how my entire being 
was being transformed. Hmm. And I have never been so fearful that I didn't have enough Uh than when I was at the height of that career making so much money. And I, I would think about money all the time. And I would think about, you know, okay, I have enough for my apartment. I have enough. I got my sister a car. I got her a house. You know? But do I have enough for this? And do I have enough for that? And do I have enough to, you know, apply to Denae College? And so it, I started noticing how even though I ran into the corporate world with the prayer to change it, mm-hmm. I lost steam really quickly and it began to change me. And the more I wanted to, you know, I I just couldn't fool myself anymore that this was the way to change the corporate world, was to join it and to be inside Mm -hmm. it. Um, So what I was able to do was now to work remotely. And that has changed everything. Because the cubicle is a very strange form of cruel and unusual punishment. It's a gray box, and I started to notice that all my creative capacity was over time dimming down to just a flicker, and I could barely mm-hmm. come up with ideas. It's almost like the box was limiting my realm of creativity, of thinking. Maybe in a way that's good, that corporations are set up in a way that, that they can't really be very creative. Absolutely. <laughs> There's definitely a, a intentional design to the cubicle. <laughs> it isolates you from the world. It yeah. isolates you from your coworkers, and it's supposed to make you focus. But what ended up happening was it backfired because I just became so unproductive. You know, there's Facebook for that, right? And and they disabled Facebook on our computers, but you know, I was sure using it on my phone. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> And I started working remotely because I said, okay, I quit. And they said, no, don't quit. We still want you. We like what you do. Just work from home. I said, okay. And now I feel like I'm able to help this company. For instance, we just gave a bunch of touchscreen tablets to Native American high school students for free. And we helped them make these films with these tablets, these cultural films. And it was this big, beautiful thing. And I loved it. My coworkers loved it. We really felt that we were doing something meaningful. And all the colleagues I work with have told me this is the best thing, the best mm. part of my job mm. I've ever been able to be a part of. And they all get so happy. Um, but when you follow that trail back to the CFO, at the end of the day, even though we as colleagues are participating in, in a kind of gift economy, the the original impetus for it is still about marketing. Right. In fact, they just merged the foundation and the marketing department. So it's like you bring these two things together and you're only giving to for your recognition and your status. And Yeah, I want to throw in a... Another perspective in with that though. Sure. Sometimes I suspect that I mean certainly there's a lot of that. I mean corporate giving as a way to improve public relations and corporate image and all that stuff, and as a way to open up marketing channels. I mean that stuff is all obviously there, mm-hmm. right? 
But I think there's another thing also, because I, I believe that it's fundamental to human nature to want to give, to want to do something meaningful, to create something beautiful in the world, you know, to help others. That's, I think, part of our nature. And that's just as true of people in corporations as anywhere else. So, like, they want to do that kind of stuff. But then there's a guardian that might take the form of the CFO, the bean counter, or an internal version of that that says, whoa, 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 you can't do that. It's not okay because you won't be okay. You won't have enough. So then the part of you that wants to do that can say, oh, no, it's okay because it's going to bring these PR benefits and these marketing benefits. Uh-huh. So those are kind of like the excuse <laughs> to do what the heart really wants to do. Yeah. And I think that's present too. Because, mm-hmm. yeah. So it's, it's not, you know, ultimately it's like any other dichotomy. You know, when you really examine what it is to be in the system or out of the system, mm-hmm. that boundary breaks down. Yeah. It's a blurry boundary. Yeah. We're all participating in it in some way. Mm-hmm. And we're all rebelling against it in some way. I believe. Mm-hmm. And what I found was I would ask my supervisor, hey, can we give this grant to this native tribe which is working on revitalizing a, an endangered being of their ancestors? I said, oh, that would be great, but I don't think my supervisor would be okay with that. So I go to his supervisor. I say, hey, can we can we get this grant here? And say, oh, that would be so cool, but... What about my boss? I don't know if they'd be okay. So I go there and I say, oh, that would be great. Let's, but you know, the CFO wouldn't be, and so everyone wants right. to. And the weird thing is then you go to the CFO and he says, well, that would be great, but I don't think middle management would. <laughs> exactly. It's, it's really, I've seen that kind of thing happen yeah. where everybody in the room wants somebody, something, but no one dare say it because they think that everybody would be against it. Yeah, exactly. It's, exactly. it's so ironic. And so tragic mm-hmm. that, I mean, it's kind of, it's almost, you could almost say that's true of a whole civilization. Nobody believes in it anymore. Yeah. But it looks like everybody else believes in it. Mm-hmm. So I better keep quiet about that. Exactly. And, and this is a company that makes $4 million every hour in pure profits. That's not counting operational revenue. Mm-hmm. Pure profits, four million dollars an hour, and they give away, you know, somewhere in two hundred million a year, which is about I don't know if you do the calculations, a week's worth of yeah, which is actually probably a lot more than a lot of corporations do. It could be, and so we're all sitting on this pile of money, and we're enjoying it. We're flying over here for a business trip. We're eating caviar over here for that business trip, and we all order steaks after we do our business trip over here, and we're just hanging out. And now I got my new shoes, my new car, and my family set. But it's still everyone in that corporation. The moment I brought out an abalone shell, and the moment I brought out tobacco tied into buckskin bundles, and I said, "This is what my people are about." And if you want to work with indigenous peoples, you need to understand this. The day I did that, in the middle of the the, the West Area team conference, hmm. they flipped their lid. They just loved it. Mm-hmm. And they were like, oh, can I have one for my sister? Mm-hmm. 
oh, did you know I pinned it up in my cubicle? My little bundle? Mm -hmm. And I call it my little buddy. (laughs) So, And so even though they have all of this money and all of this power, the moment you just give them the smallest taste of what's real, they just completely blossom and just get on their knees almost and thank you. And so the day I was able to give all these corporate leaders medicine bundles and they were overjoyed, I was like, okay, I think that happened. Mm. that That was awesome. And so participating in the system isn't all bad There's because the, you have yeah. opportunities to do things like that. It, it really... But it comes with its costs and it's dangerous. Mm-hmm. It's dangerous. Temptations. Yep. Just that, that, that's a, um, a powerful image. And it, it speaks to the hunger that the people there must have. That, you know, you touch by giving them something that, that meets a little bit of that hunger. Because ordinarily, what they're hungry for doesn't exist in their world. Mm-hmm. So all they can do is consume an endless quantity of substitutes for what they really want. Mm-hmm. And there you have the endless chase for, you know, the higher salary, the car, the, mm-hmm. like all of these things mm-hmm. that can never ever meet the hunger. And I think the way my elders would frame it is we help them feel the ancestors Mm -hmm. because my elders taught me that we are not meant to just be alone in our body, but that oftentimes we can merge with ancestors and that they can literally sit in our being with us and work with us to work at a, a loom weaving or to make an arrowhead or to hold a child or to tell a story and that in order for them to be able to sit in our being there's a few conditions that have to be held which are nothing for the self which means not for money not for fame we can't have fear they said no fear okay that changes things a lot for most of us if we had no fear and also you know just Don't try and heal someone who's trying to hurt you, basically, is the other condition. Mm -hmm. And um, that we gave these corporate leaders a moment to have those conditions. Mm -hmm. Because we're all sitting in rows. And I said, okay, everyone, just for a moment, let's sit in a circle. Stand in a circle. And probably for the first time in the history of of that uh, area, they could all see each other's faces. And they could all look at each other and that they were given a sacred bundle. And in that moment, the ancestors could be there. And they felt it. And giving them those opportunities. And, and now it's like, they just want more of it. Let's do mm-hmm. some more of that. Let's, do, let's help this group now. Let's help this tribe. Let's help this tribe. Let's, you know, and, and to be able to give them that taste when they probably wouldn't have is, is a blessing. But it's still compromising my own dream, you know. Yeah. And I, I still haven't learned my language. <laughs> still haven't planted any corn, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it, it's it's I don't I don't know what to say about it honestly. Being half in the system and half out, but 
as it starts. Yeah. I mean, sometimes I just get the sense that I'm, that I have a lot less say over my life than I like to think, and that the choices that I think I'm making, I'm not actually even making those choices. You know, like I was placed here. Maybe you were placed at that company. Mm-hmm. And because, and that placement was guided by a transcendental wisdom that knew that your gifts as they exist right now would be best suited to that place. So, you know, if that's the case, then your your duty is simply to give up those gifts as best you can in whatever circumstance you find yourself. Exactly. I guess there's, I don't, I don't want to like get too fatalistic about it, but I'm not saying that there's never, we never make choices in life, but I do think that our, in fact, I'm certain that we delude ourselves a lot in thinking that we're choosing things that we actually, I mean, really what I think is that the real choice was made long ago. Hmm. That create that well no i'm not going to get too metaphysical about it Mm -hmm. but i guess just like this for me it just brings up this attitude of of um what am i called to do wherever i find myself Mm -hmm. and then also to be grateful for the opportunity that i'm given that i couldn't have set up like you couldn't have planned that out to be in that three years ago there's no way that you could have written that play script where you would be giving medicine bundles to a circle of corporate executives mm-hmm. like that probably wouldn't. I don't know. I'm guessing it probably wouldn't <laughs> have occurred to you. Yeah. But it's a beautiful way to, to I mean, it's a, it's a beautiful expression of your gifts, you know? Yeah. And, and one of my elders said it, it doesn't matter where you are. What matters is mm-hmm. why you're there. Mm-hmm. And that really helped me because I was one of those people that was like, Am I in the right place? Am I where I'm supposed to be? Mm-hmm. Am I supposed to be doing this? Or is, am I better off over there? Should I go over there? And and this, this elder said, It doesn't matter where you are, what matters is why you are there. And if the reason you you wake up in the morning is to, you know, be a part of something beautiful and, and compassionate. And you're automatically going to end up in the right place, and that your your intention is going to bring you to a good place. And you know, my sense was that the ancestors and the universe, if you will, was bringing me to the best place they could, given the mm-hmm. prayers that I had. Uh-huh. It's like, well, you prayed to change the corporate world. This is about as good as it gets right mm-hmm. here. Um, Can you say that sentence again? They they brought me to the best place possible given the prayers that I had. Mm-hmm. And so my prayers are guiding it. And and maybe there's something different I was created for or whatever. But the fact of the matter is I wanted to change the corporate world. And so they're like, okay, well, that's what you want to do. Let's uh, see what we can whip up. Mm-hmm. And that really is, there's no better, you know, place to be than in that circle with those mm-hmm. executives, giving them medicine bundle mm-hmm. out of an abalone shell and, and asking them how they felt being in a circle. You know? Yeah. 
and giving them a moment. And even if they can have that moment, it's going to give them something to compare the rest of their life to. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, this is okay, but that was way better. <laughs> How do mm-hmm. I get back there? <laughs> yeah. It's like a, yeah, it's like this little, sometimes I compare, the, compare those to a burr in your shoe. Mm-hmm. You know, like you can't, <laughs> like, or, or that normal never quite seems normal again after that. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And I did see the way things changed in my little cubicle block. You know, it was no longer acceptable to put each other down. Mm-hmm. Because why do that when we could do this? Mm-hmm. And all of that sort of teasing that goes a little too far, it like, mm-hmm. just stopped. Mm-hmm. I was like, oh, thank God, because I, I can't have that. Well. And it, it, it was... A drop in the bucket of maybe what needs to happen in the corporate world. But as you and I were discussing earlier, that doesn't mean it's not meaningful for these people. Yeah. And that I was a part of answering their prayers for something meaningful. And the Creator was able to, to use me to that end. And you know, there's, there's a, a kind of cynical leftist critique of all this stuff that would say that, um, you know, bringing medicine bundles into the corporate workplace, bringing meditation into the corporate workplace, you know, it just kind of makes them, it kind of palliates the unease that comes from really what they're doing in the world and the system that they're a part of. And you're just making it a little bit easier for them to keep perpetrating Mm -hmm. what they're perpetrating on this planet. I don't agree with that critique, even though I know that it is pointing out um, a danger in, you know, self-congratulation because we're so spiritual around here. Mm-hmm. But if you actually take those practices at face value, then they're going to change people. Mm-hmm. You know, it is that that anomalous data point, you know, that burr in the shoe. Mm-hmm. And to say that, that these things can be practiced and not change anything, mm-hmm. that is actually the colonialist mindset that holds those things right. as impotent. Right. So it may not be immediately obvious because the corporation is subject to immense pressures. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and if you deviate too far from profit maximization, mm-hmm. well, the shareholders, the board of directors, the bondholders, mm-hmm. they are, and even, you know, taking it back a level far, farther, mm-hmm. you know, the pension fund, I mean, you know, what are you going to do if your return on investment goes down? The, your pensioners aren't going to have enough to eat. Mm-hmm. Like the whole system conspires to fight our humanity in a way. Mm-hmm. But I think that so so you know it's not like that the people in the corporate boardroom could even if they wanted to do that much different than they're doing mm-hmm. in that <clears throat> in that environment. Yeah. But I think that the more people have these experiences, the less attached they'll be mm-hmm. to holding on to the system as it stands and and maintaining it mm-hmm. um, when it's in crisis. Yeah. My brother, who's a farmer and like barely even knows what the internet is, therefore has some good insights on things. <laughs> he says the system's going to change when 
the bureaucrats get together to take care of the new crisis and their heart isn't in it. And they're just like, fuck it. <laughs> you know, we could probably patch this thing together, but fuck it. We don't want to. You know, it's too much of a pain in the ass. My heart isn't in it. Mm-hmm. I don't feel like it. I don't have that motivation. Mm-hmm. And and I think that when an institution or, or a system loses that psychic core mm-hmm. of people really believing in it and wanting it mm-hmm. and holding it as good and valuable, mm-hmm. when it loses that core, then it is becomes very fragile. Yeah. And so the work you're doing, I see it as part of the hollowing out of that psychic core. Mm-hmm. So it may not bear immediate fruit compared to, you know, a PR, like a like compared to like a divestment campaign or something to change a specific policy. Mm-hmm. You know, we're gonna protest you and boycott you until you stop doing this. Like mm-hmm. it like the the results are not that obvious. Mm-hmm. But 10, 20, 30 years down the road, maybe even 100 years down the road, mm-hmm. that's, you know, you're, you're, you're changing the ground conditions yeah. that this whole ecocidal mess is built on. Yes. And, and even beyond the showing these people, <laughs> these people, showing our brothers and sisters compassion who work in the corporate world, you know, isn't just about changing the corporate world at a certain point it's it's about just showing them compassion mm-hmm. and i think one story that illustrates that which i was blessed to come across is the story of the chief of, of what's now called puerto rico and the spanish came and this chief who was so peace loving and so compassionate and just a real fine leader and led with humility and was just a nice person really brought in the Spanish and said, oh, thank you for coming. Here's my home. Here's a meal. In fact, let's go over to the next door island. I want to introduce you. So he brought them to Hispaniola and, and introduced him to these chiefs. And, and they were so kind to these people who came. And ultimately, these same people exploited their kindness, massacred them all, raped them women, and, you know, the whole story. But I think if we were to ask this chief, if you could do that over again, what would you do? I almost guarantee you he would say, I would do the exact same thing. Because even if the world is, is a monster, that doesn't mean we stop showing it compassion. I mean, what else are we going to do? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, be a monster back. And so showing them this compassion is really is really it's taking care of our corner of the universe basically yeah we don't know the result of that like that could have sown a seed of gentleness absolutely in the spanish in the colonizers that if it hadn't been sown things would be even worse than they are today Mm -hmm. and it also completely invalidated their entire movement in the caribbean if the chief said oh well get out of here and they killed them and raped the women back you know, maybe they had a right to do that because they were getting attacked, but it would change the narrative from this fact of the matter that these Spanish were, were truly brutalizing the people from that to a battle. Right. It would have allowed an alternate narrative in. Yep. That that 
and justified it, which could have led to more massacres and more right. what have you. And and yeah, and I, I'd like to hold that side by side with the few but probably relevant examples where resistance was successful mm-hmm. and some kind of cultural integrity was maintained. But there's none come to mind right now, but I know that there are a few. Pueblo Revolt? There's definitely... Yeah. He wasn't trying to fight them by making them feel sorry for him. It was really sincere. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And sometimes the only option we have is to pray for people and to, to show them the kindness that Creator shows to us. And Sometimes that's about as far as you can get you know, with your progress. Mm-hmm. But it's it's what you are in control of. And so when we're going into these, these corporations and, and, and we're bringing this, the president of the West Area to Sundance, we're bringing the head of the legal department to Sundance ceremony, and we're bringing them to this space where everyone's fasting and dancing for the well-being of the earth. And we have the, the head of legal go to the sacred tree mm-hmm. and feel the ancestors so deeply. Even if he doesn't go back to this company, change everything, make everything better for everyone. Just the fact that we gave him that moment is enough. Yeah. And we gave him a chance to connect with his creator is enough. And and that's, you know, in other words, we're not. I stop seeing them as a means to an end, mm-hmm. but really just trying to give them this for the sake of giving them that. Yeah. Um, the results, you might say, creators in charge of that. Yes. Uh, <laughs> not, that's not your department. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but it's but there's also kind of a, a faith that the seed will blossom in some way mm-hmm. you know we yeah. don't know what it is mm-hmm. but that god sees everything mm-hmm. you know everything that we do has an effect that is in resonance with the intention and the, the yeah the intention with which it was um acted mm-hmm. exactly and uh, you know i think every religion on a deep level, affirms this. You know, in Eastern religions, that's called karma. Mm-hmm. It, you know, everything we do it bears bears an effect. Mm-hmm. And in Western religions, they say God sees everything. Absolutely. We are never alone. And even if your act is quote unquote small, it is forever going to be woven into the story of creation. Mm-hmm. And that is shared by every being on earth and i feel like buddha's work and what buddha did and how he chose to live his life even though he did it it still belongs to me too because it's woven into my being it's woven into what i experience in this life and Sitting Bull and the way he decided to live his life and his commitment to nonviolence, his stern commitment to nonviolence in the face of so much violence, that's something we all get to enjoy, whether we're in Asia or we're in Mexico. 
And so that was a, another big turning point for me when I realized that even if my act is quote-unquote small, I have other acts too because in a sense Buddha's act was my act. <laughs> and, uh-huh. and and Sitting Bull's act was my act because I'm a part of this ever-changing, fluctuating um, movement of, of, of people on this earth and and I get to be a part of it. And and therefore, mm-hmm. as well, my good deeds are, are owned by others, too. Mm-hmm. And we can all share in this um, seemingly chaotic movement of, of intentions and actions. But it, it's sort of like saying, well, this corner of the rug is smaller than this big pattern here, so it's less important. Like, no, it all works together to create the rug. And without any one piece, it would be incomplete. And all of our pieces we contribute to this universe, to this world, are vital and necessary. Yes. And adding to that kind of Mm -hmm. holographic understanding that any piece of the rug contains an image of the entire rug. Mm -hmm. Rupert Sheldrake articulates this as morphic resonance. You know, Mm. I'm actually interviewed him on this podcast as well oh. uh, and basically but it really that that you know morphic resonance basically says that any change that happens in one place creates a field of change that enables that same change to happen more easily somewhere else mm. so any act of compassion mm-hmm. strengthens the field of compassion mm-hmm. and you'll find then people across the world mm-hmm. being more compassionate too you're, you're creating a field of compassion, of peace, of love, mm-hmm. um, of truth. And it's really the same thing that you're saying. Yeah. You know? And I have no way to prove what you just said, but I just feel yeah. so deeply that me helping one kid here in Tezuki Pueblo is changing the whole world. Yes. You know? And that it's really, um, it's contributing to the orchestra. Right. And... Kind of like when one person sings, it makes it easier for another person mm-hmm. to sing and to yeah. get on on the right key. And it's harder to stay in key when you're singing all alone. Mm-hmm. But in a chorus, there's this, they call it the choral effect, where you just sing better yeah. <laughs> when you're with other people singing. Yeah. You kind of all flop like a geese into the right note. Yeah. And I, like I said, I can't prove this in any you know, empirical sense, but I know that me... Being who I am in a state of compassion is enough for mm-hmm. this world. It's enough. And not only is it enough for my people and for my, my, my mother, my mother earth, it's, it's going to help me be healthy. You know? mm-hmm. And, and going to give me the life that creator wanted me to have in the first place. Is there? Do you have like a website or something people can find your poetry or anything like that? Yeah, I do actually. Um, it's sodizen.net, which is spelled S-O-D-I-Z-I-N.net. Okay. And it's just poetry and just whatever thoughts are up. All right. Thank you. You've been listening to A New and Ancient Story with me, your host, Charles Eisenstein. To engage more deeply, you can join our community on newandancientstory.net, where we have live chats, forums, meetups, and all kinds of other tools for collaboration. 
you want to find out more about my work, then visit my website, charleseisenstein.net.